This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. Approbation by David Backer and Doors Closing, Please Stand Clear of the Doors by Zane Alamin. Bound Off is always looking for great stories. Visit our website at boundoff.com to find our submission guidelines. While there, check out our news blog. You can also find links to us on Facebook and MySpace. Also on our website is the Bound Off Bookstore in affiliation with Amazon. There you can purchase the books A Peculiar Feeling of Restlessness, four chapbooks of short, short fiction by four women, including Bound Off authors Kathy Fish, Claudia Smith, and Elizabeth Ellen. And... My Life at First Try, a novel, by Mark Budman. Approbation, written by David Backer, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 7 minutes, 49 seconds. Approbation, by Dave Backer. Approbation, a noun meaning approval. They called Tom the everything boy. He played football and basketball and soccer. He played the piano and sang in the Christmas show. He got A's in math and science and won essay contests. He painted mountain landscapes that his art teacher hung in the display cases at his school's main entrance. His locker was pristine. His vocabulary was intimidating. He had perfect attendance. He always got the highest grades on Mr. Romley's essays, too, which were known school-wide as the hardest writing assignments in the entire universe. He could make Jenna Nayburn, the prettiest girl in the eighth grade, laugh hysterically. He spoke affably with teachers, even Ms. Bartoli, the jaded, mean, and dark-eyed algebra teacher that was only happy when she was running marathons. He played Dungeons and Dragons with the geeks and dweebs, but jocks and cool kids invited him to hang out with them on the weekends. He was an institution. The first and only day the Everything Boy was absent from school, Principal Spiel caught himself asking, Where's Tom? over the loudspeaker during morning announcements. The nurses were worried. They debated the possibility of a virus. The geeks thought a hobgoblin had gotten to him. The jocks thought he might have pulled a hammy. Jenna Nayburn and the other girls began to draft get-well cards with hearts and come-back-soon written in pink ink. Everyone looked at each other nervously, hoping that the everything boy would be in school the next day. He did come back the next day, which happened to be when his short story assignment was due in Mr. Romley's fifth period class. Mr. Romley, a very unusual eighth-grade English teacher, spent an entire quarter doing a creative writing workshop with his students. Each student submitted an original short story, which was copied, distributed to the class, and then read aloud by Mr. Romley. Tom the Everything Boy handed in his story to Mr. Romley first thing that morning. Mr. Romley asked Tom if everything was all right. He shrugged, his hands buried in his pockets, and said, I wasn't feeling well, but I'm fine now. Then he left the room without another word. All day, people asked Tom if he was all right, and he told them all exactly what he told Mr. Romley. Theories abounded. Details about his demeanor were recorded and discussed in every corner of the school. Ms. Bartoli said Tom seemed quieter than normal. The nurses thought his eyes looked bigger than normal. Everybody, the jocks, the dweebs, the geeks, Jenna Nayburn and her friends and all their friends, 
all whispered about how he wouldn't take his hands out of his pockets. When the fifth period bell rang, everyone in Mr. Romley's English class took their seats with an unusual urgency. Tom sat down with his hands in his pockets and waited. Mr. Romley welcomed everyone, looked nervously at Tom, and passed out copies of Tom's short story. It was called Infinity's Dad. Mr. Romley sat down at his desk, put his reading glasses on the tip of his nose, and started reading. There once was a boy named Infinity. Everybody loved him. Everybody congratulated him about everything he did. If he painted something, people loved the painting. If he sang something, people smiled when he was singing it and clapped a lot afterwards. If he took a test, he got a good grade on it. Everyone knew Infinity, especially because of his name. But it wasn't his real name. He had just told people that it was his name since he was little, and people just accepted it because it seemed like he had everything. Only one person knew Infinity's real name. That person was his dad. His dad was also the only person that never congratulated Infinity. Infinity's dad was the only person that didn't smile when he sang, the only person that didn't shake his hand when he got a good grade, the only person that didn't like his paintings. Infinity thought his dad was maybe still sad because Infinity's mom died, even though she had died a long time ago. But that was the only explanation Infinity could come up with for why his dad didn't do anything except sit on the couch and watch television all day. Infinity did all kinds of things to try and cheer him up. He would sing songs, but they didn't cheer him up. Infinity would do long division problems in front of him with really big numbers, but it didn't impress him. Infinity brought his friends home to hang out, but his dad wouldn't even say hello. One time, Infinity brought home a different trophy every day of the week and lined them up on the coffee table in between his dad and the television. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. When he brought the last one home, Infinity's dad just leaned forward and pushed it with his hand so it didn't block the television. Then one morning, Infinity woke up and decided to stop doing stuff. He decided to do exactly what his dad did. He didn't want to go to school anymore. He didn't want to sing anymore, or play sports, or do science fairs, or talk to his friends. He didn't want anything. He just wanted to sit still like his dad on the couch and stare. So he did. He didn't even brush his teeth. He went downstairs in his pajamas and sat down on the couch. An hour went by. Two hours went by. After five hours, Infinity started to cry. He felt really small, and he didn't feel strong enough to sit on the couch with his dad. Then something wonderful happened. Infinity's dad turned towards him and said, Why didn't you go to school today? Because I wanted to sit here, Infinity said. You shouldn't do that. You're too good at things to do that, Infinity's dad said. I am, Infinity asked. Oh yeah, tomorrow you have to go to school. I'll write you a note. Then Infinity's dad smiled. It was the first time Infinity had seen his dad smile. Then Infinity and his dad watched television for the rest of the night. When Infinity woke up the next morning, he got ready for school and went downstairs. He passed by his dad, who was sleeping on the couch. In his dad's hand was a folded piece of paper with Infinity's real name on it. Infinity carefully took it out of his dad's hand and ran to the bus stop to read it. It said, To whom it may concern, Please excuse, blank, from school yesterday. He wasn't feeling well, but he's fine now. 
I'm sure he'll make up the work he missed. He's a very good boy. Sincerely, Mr. Blank. Infinity folded the note and held it in his hand. He held the note in his hand for the whole bus ride to school and wouldn't let it go. Then he got to school and someone in the attendance office asked for it, but he put it in his pocket. He didn't want to give the note to anyone. He kept it in his pocket and held it in his hand for the rest of his life. The end. When Mr. Romley finished reading, he looked up from the paper and looked at Tom. Everyone in class was very quiet. So where were you yesterday, Tom? Mr. Romley asked, smiling. Everybody turned around in their seats to see the everything boy, whose hands were buried deep in his pockets. I wasn't feeling well, Mr. Romley, but I'm better now, he said. The End David Backer was born in 1984 in Danbury, Connecticut. He teaches Theory of Knowledge at the American School of Quito, Ecuador. You can read his novel, Peace and Uncertainty, at peaceinuncertaintyblovel.wordpress.com. Doors Closing. Please stand clear of the doors. Written and read by Zane Alamine. Listing time, 9 minutes, 41 seconds. Doors Closing, Please Stand Clear of the Doors by Zain Alamin. It usually took Mahmoud less than 15 minutes to walk from the biochemistry department to the College Park metro station. But on this unusually chilly March day, he was bogged down with multi-layered clothing and two backpacks, so it took him over half an hour. When he arrived at the station, he saw the train approaching on the elevated track, so he rushed to catch it. He ran through the turnstile, startling the metro personnel that were huddled in their guard shack. He stopped for a second to beam a conciliatory smile at them before resuming his sprint up to the platform. He heard the train pull in the station, and then he saw it pull away just as he got to the top of the escalator. It was rush hour, so it wouldn't be long before the next train pulled in. He stood there for a minute, steaming beneath his leather jacket, wool sweater, long-sleeved shirt, and tank top. As soon as he regained his breath, he proceeded to peel off some of the layers. He had grown a full beard for the winter, and at this moment, he wished he could peel it off along with the clothing. The beard was not something that he was sporting, it was the kind of unkempt beard that grew out of depression and self-neglect. In this case, it was something he grew in the wake of a breakup. He set his two bags on the ground, a slim red one and a black and gray Jansport backpack pregnant with contents. He took off his bright red, orange and black ringed hothead wool cap a friend had made him and had begun to take off his leather jacket when the Metro security announcement came over the speakers. Except this time it was not the standard warning. A Metro employee had decided to break the monotony of her day by improvising. Instead of the usual, please report any suspicious packages or activity to a Metro employee or a police officer, she went with the following attention-getter. If you don't want what happened in Madrid to happen here, then report any suspicious packages or activities to the nearest metro employee or police officer. 
It was obvious that this was someone who had no idea how this ad-libbing might affect the primed-for-paranoia citizenry, especially in light of the fact that the Madrid bombings had occurred only two days ago. Mahmoud was caught off guard by the announcement. He realized that all conversation had ceased and that his coat was hanging around his elbows in mid-undress. His first instinct was to seek out someone who was in the same state of disbelief and to commiserate. But when he looked down both sides of the platform, he saw that most people were staring at him, not with disbelief or indignation, but with suspicion. They were staring at the bearded, leather-clad Arab with the two bags. He decided not to take off his jacket and stood there with his cap in his hand and his head exposed to the elements. He pretended to look up and down the rails, but he was really testing the atmosphere with his peripheral vision, looking left and right without turning his head. A solemn silence had set in with the exception of the sound emitting from a student who was plugged into his iPod and lost in his music. This young man must have missed the announcement because he nodded in Mahmoud's direction to a tinny rhythm that crackled in the cold air. The rest of the riders were still pinned in place by the warning and by the incidental discovery of the furry, bag-laden foreigner. The only thing that moved were their heads, shifting back and forth between the distant light of the arriving train and Mahmoud, the train and the Arab with the two bags, the train and the potential terrorist. Mahmoud was the first to go into the metro car. In his haste, he sought out the usual seat. A creature of habit, he liked to sit in the seat at the end of the third car that faces all the other seats. That usually afforded him plenty of legroom and a good distance from most of the other riders with the quiet to get some reading done on the 20-minute ride home. But as soon as he sat down, he realized that this was the worst place to be when one is trying to avoid attention. He realized this as soon as he set his bags down and looked up to notice that most of the dozen or so passengers that were in the car were now facing him, still fixated on him and his two bags. The doors did not close immediately, and the train operator blared an apology for the delay. Mahmoud thought about changing seats or even changing cars, but then he heard the automated announcement. Doors closing. Please stand clear of the doors. Among the riders in his car, one gray-haired woman stood out. She was the only one that was not looking at him, but seemed to be quite aware of what was going on, visibly disgusted with the whole scrutiny he was getting. Her clear blue eyes scanned from passenger to passenger as if the mere gaze would shame them and avert their attentions. For a moment she seemed on the verge of saying something, but instead chose to look in Mahmoud's direction and smile sadly in a remote sign of solidarity. Mahmoud was too nauseated to smile back. This was becoming a familiar scene. In September 2001, he was working at Washington Dulles International Airport. The bar at the main terminal was packed with passengers watching the television above the idle bartender. Mahmoud approached the bar to see what was on the screen, and every other patron turned to him. They alternated between looking at the burning buildings and at Mahmoud, 
Mahmoud and then the burning buildings. Last year, he was on a plane heading to Oklahoma City. He had rushed to the airport without shaving or showering and decided to clean up on the plane. He slept for most of the flight and got up an hour before landing to tidy up. He took out his toiletry bag from the overhead compartment and went to the lavatory. He washed, brushed, and started to shave when he heard a knock on the door. He checked the lock and confirmed that it was turned to occupied, so he assumed that it was just someone trying to hurry him. A minute later came a louder, more urgent knock. He hurried his leisurely mini-spa and was drying his face when there came an even louder knock. He jerked the door open to find a startled and flushed stewardess standing there. She hesitated for a moment and then explained in a panicked voice that he had been in the bathroom for a while and that there was concern. He snapped at her. We can't take a piss anymore without being timed and closed the door. He stood there for a long minute with his hands on the sink and prepared himself for the inevitable walk of the gauntlet of alarmed passengers. He managed to make his way back to his seat without looking at a single passenger. A few minutes later, the embarrassed stewardess offered him a free cocktail and he turned it down, not bothering to explain why this offer was the added insult. Mahmoud returned from these recollections to find himself still under the frightened scrutiny of his fellow passengers. He decided to distract himself with reading or the pretense of reading. He bent down and opened his red back to take out his novel and noticed a silver wire protruding from the partially unzipped main compartment of his overstuffed black backpack. He tucked the wire inside the bag and zipped it up. He looked up again and realized that several passengers sitting across from him had noticed this seeming sleight of hand. It was then that Mahmoud realized that he has to do what he was inevitably going to do, that this is the time to perform in public what he and his circle had been practicing in the privacy of the back room of Sparky's Cafe for months now. He took a deep breath for composure's sake and felt his shoulders drop back into their sockets. He reached down, zipped open the backpack, and allowed the wire to pop out again. He pinched the wire between his thumb and forefinger and pulled on it carefully so as not to unravel his handiwork. Something was snagged, so he reached with his free hand and untangled it. He continued to extract the wire that was part of a circular knitting needle that was entangled in the beginnings of a mint green scarf. There was a slight but palpable commotion that quickly settled in the car. Mahmoud felt a shift in the air, a drop in the voltage. He did not look up. He reached in his bag again and took out a ball of twine that was attached to the swatch. He separated the needles and then crossed them, knit once, purled once, knit and purled. He did not follow the intricate pattern of the scarf. This was more of a demonstration. He did this for a minute and then looked up. Everyone was looking away with the exception to the elderly blue-eyed woman. She looked squarely at him, smiling. He smiled back and returned to the scarf, unraveled the row that he had just completed and started again, this time weaving in a slow, deliberate manner.
Zane's poems have appeared in Gist, Penumbra, DC Poets Against the War Anthology, and Joybringer. His short story, Adventures of a Skinny Foreigner, was published in Unomas magazine. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.